Hello there and welcome to the Centre for Independent Studies. My name is Tom Switzer and I'm the Executive Director here at CIS. Well, all eyes will be on America on November 3 for the US presidential election race. President Donald Trump from the Republican Party versus the former Vice President and Senator Joe Biden from the Democratic Party. Now, on September 30, the two candidates faced each other in the first of what will be three presidential debates. That first debate, by all accounts, was a depressing spectacle. Dan Baltz, the distinguished veteran reporter for the Washington Post, he appeared to reflect the consensus opinion when he declared, no one alive has ever seen a presidential debate like Tuesday night's unseemly shoutfest. So what to make of the debate? And indeed, what's the state of the US presidential race leading up to November 3? And who should win? Well, we at CIS are absolutely thrilled and delighted to host our own lively debate between two leading commentators from North America. And at any moment, her ferret of a husband might slip his leash and get up to old tricks, you know. PJ O'Rourke is America's leading political satirist, formerly the editor of National Lampoon. He's now a correspondent for The Atlantic and the H.L. Mencken Research Fellow at the Washington-based Cato Institute, a bit like a sister think tank of CIS. PJ's many books include Give War a Chance, Don't Vote, It Just Encourages the Bastards, <laughs> and most recently, A Cry from the Far Middle, Dispatches from a Divided Land. Now, PJ was a guest here at CIS in 2009 and 2016. One of PJ's quirky quotes about American politics goes like this. The Democrats are the party that says government will make you smarter, taller, richer, and remove the crabgrass on your lawn. <laughs> the Republicans are the party that says government doesn't work, and then they get elected and prove it. And with that, it's a great pleasure to welcome PJ back to CIS. G'day, PJ. Well, good day to you. I'm glad to be here. <laughs> and Conrad Black is a former newspaper publisher. His many publications include the UK Daily Telegraph and the UK Spectator, which I had the pleasure of working for for several years, the Chicago Sun-Times, the Jerusalem Post, the National Post in Canada, and for a period in the 1990s, the Fairfax publications, which include the City Morning Herald and the Financial Review. Conrad is a member of the British House of Lords, and his many books include Franklin Delano Roosevelt, Champion of Freedom, Richard M. Nixon, A Life in Full, and Donald J. Trump, a president like no other. In 2019, President Trump granted Conrad a full presidential pardon for fraud. Now, according to the Wall Street Journal editorial page, Mr. Trump was willing to defy liberal elites to correct an injustice, while Lord Black can live out his days free from the stigma of a prosecution that should never have been brought. That's the Wall Street Journal editorial page. And with that, Conrad, it's always great to be with you, mate. And with you, Tom. It's always a pleasure to be back in Australia, even this way. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Now, I'd like to call in each speaker just to make two minutes of opening remarks, just their reflections on the debate this week, but also their reflections on the state of the US presidential race. PJ, over to you. Well, um, I was <clears throat> pondering this, that making two minutes of sense out of 90 minutes of nonsense is <laughs> it's a rumpelstiltskin task, you know, but I'll, I'll do my best. Um, I, I have seen more substantive debates conducted on a barroom floor with fists and boots, and, um, and none of these, buddy as they may have been, lasted for 90 minutes. Um, 
poor debate moderator Chris Wallace, decent, fair-minded fellow, but he's hardly the kind of publican to come out from behind the bar, grab Trump and Biden by their shirt collars and belt loops and heave them into the street. Um, this would have given the United States an hour and a half to drink in peace. Uh, and what with the ass that has been sat on the White House throne as Lord of Misrule during America's four-year Feast of Fools running for re-election against our nation's most washed-up and waterlogged piece of political floatsam and jetsam who's been soaking in the slime of the Washington mud since 1973. We need a drink. I wish <laughs> Trump could have shut up. Um, I, I say this not because of my dislike for the man, which is extensive, uh, but because his opponent has a lot of explaining to do. Uh, Joe Biden's campaign platform is, it's, it's a lap-numbing 564 pages long. Joe, it, Joe is Santa on crack, uh, promising flying ponies, peppermint rainbows, sacks of pixie dust all around. Uh, I, I, I want to hear him tell me how we keep the ponies from colliding with the rainbows and the pixie dust from gumming up the gears of administration and the economy. Uh, I also wish Trump would shut up because although my dislike for him is extensive, it's not entire. Uh, I, I, I approve of some of the things he's done with taxes, trades, and government regulation, and Conrad Black's pardon, let us not forget. Um, uh, so his, his deeds are not all dross, but, but his, his words are all dreck. Uh, whenever he opens his mouth, angry din, untruthful babble, and stupid pandemonium pour forth. For his own damn good, he should put a sock in it. Now, who do I think, well, it's not a matter of who would, who should win the presidential election. I think it should be some person chosen at random by national lottery. Um, but failing that, um, <laughs> I guess I favor Joe Biden because I'm tired of the mess, the chaos, the unpredictability, the sound and the fury that's Trump. And, you know, Joe is stupid. Joe is ineffectual. Joe is silly. But I'm a conservative. Uh, I think government is stupid, ineffectual, and silly. And, and it's time for America to get back to its conservative roots. Well, PJ, as we'd expect, a very quirky and delightful opening two minutes. Conrad, you heard PJ there. Quite stinging rebuke of President Trump. Put the other side. Over to you, Conrad. Thanks very much, Tom, and thank you, PJ. I, I think actually um, PJ, in some respects, made Trump's case for him. Uh, he 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 laments the chaos that uh, Trump has brought to things, but I put it to you, PJ, and to your to your viewers, Tom, that um, that chaos, although some aspects of it are particular to the president's especially pugnacious and sometimes gratuitously annoying public <laughs> personality. He's a very pleasant man in person. Um, that chaos was necessitated by the task of the reassertion of American conservatism. He has, as you implied, PJ, been in policy terms a very good president. One of the things that was unfortunately not mentioned last night was that he has stopped 90% of the illegal immigration 
prior to the COVID virus, he had eliminated unemployment. There were more jobs to fill than people seeking a job. Uh, and, and he was the first leader of any serious jurisdiction to achieve that aim that all jurisdictions of any responsibility have been uh, aiming at unsuccessfully, and that is to start to shrink the income disparity gap. He had the lowest 20% of income earners progressing on a percentage basis more quickly than the upper 10%. Now, and they'll get that back. It's coming back. So th this virus won't paralyze the country much longer, and it is fading, both in its fatality rate and in the unemployment that the shutdown uh, uh, caused. And uh, so I, the fact is, I don't like the chaos either, but when somebody, as Trump did, absolutely unprecedented in American history, never having sought or held any public office elected or unelected or any military command, sets out to debunk and, and, and change the personnel and the techniques of the entire political system, the vast apparatus of the American federal state, and he ran against all factions of both parties. He ran against the Bushes as much as the Clintons and Obama. It takes a while, and it does cause chaos, and the incumbents don't go quietly. The, you know, Trump's opponents are terribly nasty people, severely entrenched, heavily entrenched, with their all four feet in the public trough, never mind their snouts. And, and yeah. Biden is kind of the, the mascot of that Washington political class. I mean, he's totally ineffectual. He doesn't represent anything. He's a waxworks dummy. Trump's right in 47 <laughs> years in public life. He never did anything except crucify poor old Bob Bork, who was a great man and a friend of mine, and, and tried to do the same to Justice Clarence Thomas. And, and, and Trump, whatever else may be said, before he was inaugurated president, he had achieved more in his life, making money, building fine buildings, becoming an instant television star. Outrageous rubbish, I admit. I never watched a single episode of it. He pulled <laughs> 5 to 25 million viewers every week for 14 years, and it was his idea of a program. He achieved more, and, and, and then in transferring his brand into the highest political offices he did, and running as a total outsider and winning, never done before, uh, than anyone who's held that office except the founders of the country who became president, Washington, Jefferson, and Madison, and the commanders of great armies in victorious and just wars, Grant and Eisenhower. And, uh, and he is not a boob. He seems like it sometimes, but he isn't. He is a formidable man, and he's had, I would say, the best first term of any president in the country's history, except for Lincoln, Mr. Nixon, and Franklin D. Roosevelt. And, and you, you just have to step back from the absolutely asinine consequences of him inflicting his personality in the public square and see what he's achieved. And, and PJ, you spoke as always very well, very amusingly, most of what you said is true, but you're missing the main point. Trump is a damn good president and he will be reelected. Well, they've heard two strikingly different views about Donald Trump and to some extent, Joe Biden. PJ, all things considered, thinks that Biden would be a better bet for America. And you just heard Conrad there saying that all things considered, Trump would be a much better bet uh, than Joe Biden. And Conrad, you have said elsewhere that really after that debate, one really longs for the Kennedy-Nixon debates in 1960. These were the debates between the then Vice President Richard Nixon and the Democratic Senator John F. Kennedy, you said they were civilised, well-informed. These were courteous Navy combat veterans in their 40s. 
what has happened to American public discourse in the last 60 years? PJ O'Rourke. Yes, it hasn't gotten a lot better. Um, the, um, I, I, you know, so some of this I would blame on Bill Clinton. Um, uh, he, I think that uh, uh, the dignity of office is a very important aspect uh, of, of the presidency. It was given a little jolt um, by Richard Nixon's shenanigans, although they didn't really fall outside the, the parameters of normal politics, even if they led to a bigger scandal than they usually would have. Um, it was given a little little nudge to the side by uh, the very uh, um, uh, unprepossessing Jimmy Carter. But it really took uh, Bill Clinton uh, as a re representative of my generation, the baby boomers, to um, really take the mickey out of the office. All, uh, by the time he was done, all dignity was lost. And I think that loss of dignity is reflected in, 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 the, in the degeneration of rhetoric um, uh, and, and, and degeneration of debate. And it's, it's all become um, personal. It's all become um, a, bad, a bad family dinner um, yeah. or, you know, Okay, but uh, Conrad, you've argued elsewhere in the, in the course of the um, last 24 hours since that debate that uh, Trump should have followed Napoleon's advice not to, quote, interrupt your enemy when he's making a mistake. But let's be frank, Trump was exceedingly rude, crude last night. Isn't there a danger here that he'll alienate not just a lot of Americans, but turn off a lot of people around the world with his carry-on? Conrad Black. Yeah, look, I don't think he much cares about what people outside the United States think of him. He is uh, perfectly amenable to foreigners and not a bit of a xenophobe, but he thinks that virtually every other country in the world is trying to pick America's pocket, and, and he's not altogether mistaken in that. But, um, uh, yes, I think there is danger, and that's why I wrote it. I think if he just let Chris Wallace, uh, you know, follow home his questions to Biden, Biden could not have handled them. And as it was, he sort of skulked out of the question because of the cacophony caused by all three people speaking at once. So I, I, I don't take my hat off to the way Trump handled mm. the debate at all. Uh, on the other hand, I would say that I, I got the count today from Bill Bennett, with whom I appear on a podcast regularly, that... Uh, yeah. that um, Former Reagan Education Secretary, yep. Yeah, and drugs are, yes. Uh, that, that he... Um, uh, Trump had interrupted Biden 74 times and Biden had inter uh, interrupted Trump 22 times. And, and of course, this shouldn't happen. Uh, and, and Trump was the instigator. On the other hand, the president of the United States is the chief of state as well as the head of government. And he is, as the longest occupant of that office, Mr. Roosevelt said, in some measure, the head of the American people. And in that respect, there are some limits to what you can say to and about him. And for Biden to say, you're a liar, you're a racist, uh, uh, you're the worst president in history, uh, he, 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 uh, he said he's, you're a clown several times. I mean, this is not on. It won't fly. You can't, an American cannot say that about the president. And, and uh, you can say he's incompetent, he's terrible, he should be thrown out, no one should vote for him, perfectly fair comment. Uh, but in terms of absolute rudeness, it was pretty close to a dead heat. Now, on your question earlier, Tom, of what's happened in the last 60 years, 
uh, you know, I, I, unlike you, I'm venerable enough to remember those debates. And in any case, for my Nixon mm-hmm. book, I went through them all over again. But mm-hmm. the, the, the golden age of the American presidency was Roosevelt, Truman, and Eisenhower. You had, uh, you, you know, you had a, a nearly 30 years of, of really high quality occupants of the office and, and highly distinguished, although there was plenty of controversy about them. And, and uh, Nixon and Kennedy ran as younger men, a change of generations, and the office was exceedingly respected. And since that time, PJ is right. I think Clinton stylistically was the most offensive and the most shameless. But there was the, the terrible controversy as well as the tragedy of Vietnam. The, the Watergate was nonsense, of course. And it, unfortunately, it was amplified by certain anomalies in Mr. Nixon's own personality. But even today, there's no evidence he himself committed a crime. But that's not the point. It was a terrible indignity. And, uh, and, and Carter was, was a a kind of a, a fluke uh, president who, who, you know, sat there in his cardigan complaining about the national malaise of which the chief symbol was his presence in the White House. Reagan brought it back. But yeah. all of the debates through this period, right up to the last one uh, prior to this year, were reasonably polite. And uh, this is just an anomaly because Trump is a kind of a revolutionary. And, and okay. part of it is he's a storming the, the, you know, the ramparts all the time. And the entire Democratic campaign is a smear job on him. And that was last night. Biden did not answer any of the questions from uh, you know, court packing to what his son was doing, taking three and a half million dollars from the wife of the mayor of Moscow. He didn't answer anything. He had no policy proposal. It was just a smear job on Trump. Well, Conrad, let's talk about Biden. PJ, are you overlooking the fact that the party he leads is no longer the party of JFK and Bill Clinton, whom Conrad just mentioned? It's now the party essentially of the Democratic Socialist Bernie Sanders. Just look at some of their positions in their platform. The attack on capitalism and markets, the rise of left-wing intolerance of campus. Where's the criticism of that? The critique of America as irredeemably racist, the religious devotion to zero emissions as part of their climate decarbonisation policy. I mean, question, doesn't this worry you? I mean, why on earth would you support someone like Biden who leads a party that is very much against the principles that think tanks like the Centre for Independent Studies, views that you've held for many years? Doesn't that worry you, PJ? Oh, it, it, it worse than worries, it sickens. And believe me, I don't support Biden. But I'm not positive that there's any way to get rid of the modern Democratic Party and um, uh, the people who are leading it. Uh, I mean, Biden's going to get rid of himself in, in, in due time. But uh, where the Democratic Party has gone is to an awful place. And I'm not sure that there is any way to get rid of that party and, 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 and what it stands for. Um, except to put it in power. Um, I mean, this is a rather cynical view, I suppose, but they need to fail and they need to fail badly and people need to, people need to be reminded. You know, I mean, one of the things I think that when we see all these young people running off into socialistic um, nonsense is that I did the math on this and I realized that for my daughters, college-age daughters, uh, the fall of the Berlin Wall was as long ago for them as the Great Depression was for me. And the opening of China, for instance, to free markets um, 
that was as long ago uh, as, uh, as, as the Coolidge administration, as far as they're concerned. One of the reasons that kids are willing to accept socialism or enthuse about socialism, they haven't seen what it does. I mean, all that's left is, you know, the, the odd chaos of Venezuela or Cuba, where you can go get cheap rum and, and, and have a little uh, kumbaya or uh, Guantanamera sing along in the cool old cars. And, and they don't really know, they don't really understand how vicious, destructive, murderous um, the, these, these theories are when they're carried to their logical conclusion. I don't think they can be carried to their logical conclusion in the United States. I think we're, you know, we're uh, immune to that as a nation. But I do, um, uh, I, without supporting Biden, I wouldn't mind seeing him and his ilk and his friends and the, and the rest of the fools. I wouldn't mind seeing them fall badly on their faces. And I think it would clear the air and um, clean up the part, the Democratic Party. Yeah, but if the Democrats have lurched so radically to the left, Conrad, how do you account for the fact that Trump struggles to get more than 43%, 44% in the national polls? And how do you account for the fact that the Republicans went backwards so badly at the midterm elections, the 2018 midterm elections uh, that cost the Republicans the House of Representatives? Well, on the midterm elections, Trump's result was not worse than it usually is. Uh, it's very rare for a president to gain um, congressional deputation in, in his first midterm uh, election. Roosevelt did, but that, that he was the only one in uh, in, in the last uh, more than well, what it would almost a, almost a century of whom that could be said, um, and, and Nixon sort of held his place, but he was a minority in both houses of the Congress throughout his time. Uh, I mean that 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 wasn't unusual, and they gained a bit in the Senate. But um, uh, I, look, I, I I agree with basically what PJ said, but I think what he said is is the second best way of curing the Democratic Party uh, of, of its severely compromised condition. Uh, I mean, look, we need both parties. Both parties come to bat, and uh, over time, essentially half the people are Republicans and half are Democrats. Uh, but what you need when one of the parties gets it just goes completely off the track, which happens from time to time. The, the best solution is an absolute hammering at the polls. That, that enables them to regroup. It discredits the bad elements and, and better people take over. And that happened to the Republicans in 64. And I don't, I'm a conservative too, but I never bought into the theory that Goldwater was the answer. And he was skulking behind the rubbish about states' rights to drag his feet about, about uh, desegregation. And, um, and a lot of people, including friends of mine like Bill Buckley, have had a free ride on supporting that whole thing. And, and it happened to the Democrats with what they put up in 72. McGovern, as even the New York Times said, was advocating a policy in Vietnam more humiliating to the United States than Hanoi was asking for. And, but after the severe defeats they suffered, the parties bounced back and they won the next election. Now, I think that's what should happen to the Democrats. It's, it's rotted away. It's a party now allied to pestilence, propped up by these corrupt city machines that can't even prevent massive vandalism on some of the most famous boulevards in the world, and, uh, and, and is playing footsie with, in fact, 
urban terrorist guerrilla organizations, and, and that won't fly. And, and I, I agree with PJ. The fallback position is Biden comes into power. No matter what happens in the Congress, he will not get any of the Sanders program passed. He will be totally incompetent. If he survives the term, uh, I mean, if he doesn't, we'll get Kamala Harris, who would be uh, more elegant and presentable, but just as incompetent and, and far more subversive in policy terms, and it'll be a disaster, and there, and there will be a change. But let's have the change completed now and just plug our ears. We don't have to hold our nose, but you know, plug our ears while Trump carries on and finishes the work he's in, because he's, as I think PJ acknowledged, done a good job in policy terms. Well, Conrad mentioned race there, PJ. Um, following the horrific murder of George Floyd in the northern summer in Minnesota, there was widespread protests across the United States and indeed the world, the Black Lives Matter movement. To what extent does this help or hurt the Democrats leading up to the election on November 3? PJ? Well, I, I would think it would hurt, actually. I, you know, I, I sometimes think that the uh, Black Lives Matter and the Antifa and so on and so forth is conducting the most effective part of the Trump re-election campaign. Uh, meanwhile, I also wonder if Joe Biden isn't paying for Donald Trump's Twitter account, which is <laughs> running the most effective part of the campaign to elect Joe Biden. Um, it, normally, uh, chaos in our cities, of uh, uh, case in point, is that uh, just as the chaos in our cities in, at the end of the 60s was rising to, to terrible proportions, and the war was going very wrong, and, and, and America was in a terrible state. The 18-year-olds got the vote. Uh, I was uh, uh, of that ilk. And um, we just assumed that our wonderful new franchise right would sweep the likes of, uh, of uh, we'd sweep the man out of, the, uh, 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 out of office, and that all sorts of George McGovern types would would uh, would come in and, and, and make everything uh, uh, peace, love, and understanding. And, of course, we were wiped out. Uh, 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 Nixon won by an absolute landslide. Mm. And uh, so I, I, I think these things are and, – and, and, and Biden's failure last night to – I mean, he did – in general terms, denounce violence, which is, you know, like announcing that you love your mother. Um, but his his refusal or inability or lack of, uh, of, of microphone time, uh, whatever caused it, he did not really speak out against these people. And I think that that augurs poorly for him. Although, to come back to Conrad's point, yes, I suppose that in an ideal world, um, I would like to see the Democrats smashed at the polls right now. I just feel that partly because of Trump's public persona, partly because of the um, um, there is tremendous animus against him in the United States that it's the if Trump cured COVID-19 tomorrow, uh, the New York Times headline would be heart disease kills more people. Uh, I mean, there's simply nothing, yes. nothing you, you, you can do to, to change that liberal elite's mind except to defeat them at the polls. Uh, and, and, and the way that, the, in general, the Republican Party has, has been behaving, I think it makes it very unlikely to have the kind of decisive election this year that would really put 
uh, Kamala Harris's and the uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's and so on out to pasture where they belong. Yeah, but in 1968, and Conrad, you know this better than anyone because you wrote a, a very important biography of Richard Nixon. In 1968, in the wake of the Martin Luther King assassination, the Vietnam War protests, there was rioting, lawlessness in the streets, and Richard Nixon running for president in 1968 uh, effectively used the crime and the lawlessness and all those massive protests and the violence to his great advantage in the 1968 election. Do you think Donald Trump can do the same thing, use the crime as a way of wedging the Democrats? Yeah, it's more complicated, of course, because now now you're it's really a straight racial issue. Now, in fact, in 68, you had a mixture of uh, racial rioting and anti-war rioting, even though uh, Nixon was not responsible for for immersing the country in the Vietnam War. Um, and and uh, here it, it's it's focused differently so it, it's it's a the, the 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 protesters peaceful and otherwise are uh, a, a much smaller and unrepresentative group i would have thought that pj is right that the, the uh, tremendous violence uh, cannot cannot simply be um dismissed as the result of uh, police brutality, which is, which is not official policy anywhere, but obviously some policemen are incompetent and some are, are, are bad people. But, uh, but most of them aren't, and most people think that most police are basically all right and in any case perform a necessary service. So I, I would have thought so, but I, I, am, I will say, and this goes back to your earlier question, Tom, I'm a little surprised at the polls, but I would make this point. Most of these polling organizations are Democratic front organizations, and Monmouth and some uh, Politico. You can't believe a word they say. And even the New York Times poll has Trump at 46%. It must kill him to say that. Secondly, uh, the evidence (laughs) is that that, uh, a substantial number of Trump supporters refuse to uh, speak candidly about politics to strangers. And this year, as four years ago, the polls are underestimating him. And I think many of the polls are polling the wrong echelon of people. He does pull out a lot of people who don't normally vote. And um, and so the polls are particularly unreliable at this point. But I, I, I you know, I, the, the way the electoral map works of the big big majority of up to 4 million for the Democrats in California, Trump can win with with uh, fewer votes than his chief opponent. And that's happened six times before in American elections. There's nothing wrong with it. It, just, it happens sometimes. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I think he's actually in a better position than it looks, but there is no doubt there's a tremendous amount of hostility to him. On the other hand, he has perhaps as many as 60 million people who really truly are believers and, and are rabid MAGA hat wearers and think the president is, is if you'll pardon my putting it this way, Jesus Christ on wheels. I, I mean, it's a strange <laughs> gap. But isn't that a problem for Trump, though, PJ, because he's got this very loyal base of 43, 44%. But at the midterm elections two years ago, many college educated, moderate Republicans who held their nose to vote for Trump in 2016 because they didn't like Hillary Clinton, this time they've really turned off Trump's polarising politics. To what extent is this a problem for Donald Trump, that he's struggling to win over a lot of those college-educated Republicans in the suburban parts of middle America? Yeah, that is a... uh, um, And that's very much a result of his public tone. 
and it is a very serious problem. I think a more serious problem, though, is that the president, like uh, like the Fisher King, like the mythological god kings of yore, um, gets praised or blamed for whatever happens during his term in office. And we have a tendency to sacrifice, to perform human sacrifice if the crops fail uh, and take the king out and kill him. Of course, we don't do that in the United States. We take him out and we give him millions of dollars for a very dull book. Um, uh, But the... uh, uh, I think probably the biggest danger that Trump faces really has nothing to do with him or his policies or his opponent, uh, but the simple fact that this COVID pandemic mm, happened mm. while he was in office. And that has claimed more than 200,000 lives. Conrad, Russia Gate. Uh, it's fair to say that few political allegations are as, or have been as persistent as the charge that Donald Trump is somehow of Vladimir Putin's puppet. Uh, This uh, uh, haunted him throughout the 2016 campaign and certainly the first two years of his presidency. We've got a question here from Mike Hemingway. Thanks, Mike. What do you think of the allegations now of Obama Biden organising the FBI to spy on Trump, both when he was campaigning and then when he was president and then trying to get him removed from office? Was this some kind of coup and why doesn't the media talk about it? Conrad. I, I don't know that it would be quite as direct responsibility to the then president and vice president as that as the question as you formulated it would imply. But I, I don't think there's any doubt that they knew that it was happening. And I think it's clear that they were certainly uh, the hosts of the famous January 5th, 2017 White House meeting where all this was talked about. And I, I, think, that, I think they're both in it up to a Maybe not to their eyeballs, but pretty far. And um, uh, the, the fact that Mrs. Clinton knew that she was peddling false Russian information and, and uh, had it styled as an intelligence or counterintelligence investigation, so therefore the media could count on its reliability and didn't have to check any of it out and tried to push it into the American media in the last few weeks before the last election. All of that is a disgrace, and, and the, the business of undoubtedly fraudulent um, affidavits seeking a warrant for uh, uh, domestic surveillance on the Trump campaign and transition teams is the most serious breach of the Constitution in the history of the country. Uh, it's the closest the United States has ever come to tanks on the White House lawn. And it hasn't received the attention it deserved because uh, in attacking the uh, the political system as it was, not the system in constitutional terms, but the personnel and the techniques. And, and I, I might add that in doing so, Trump was attacking after, I would say, the 20 worst years of presidential misgovernment in the country's history, worse than the 10 years preceding the Civil War and worse than the incompetence between Wilson and Roosevelt uh, that gave us the Great Depression, Prohibition and, and uh, isolationism. Uh, in, in, in doing that, he specifically included the national political media, and I think that is the 
principal reason, though it's not for me to impute motives to a large and varied group of people, but the principal reason why the media, the national political media is so hostile to them. But they are all, they've they put the, wa the wagons in a circle and they're, you know, they're defending themselves against what they believe to be a barbarian. But for his part, he feels that he is uh, the crusading force of reform, throwing out a bunch of people who've misgoverned the place and run it for their own benefit while the country has been in decline in the world. And uh, it's just very hard to reconcile those positions. But um, uh, for that reason, the media is simply not paying much attention to, to, to the growing evidence that absolutely shocking and outrageous uh, politicization of the intelligence apparatus and the FBI took place. And James Comey's performance at the Senate Judiciary Committee this morning was an absolute shambles. I mean, he can't remember anything. Mm, Nothing. Mm. And Americans deserve to know that full story. Let's move along, Conrad. Uh, a PJ question here from Debbie from Brisbane. Uh, why has the US judiciary become so politicized? And of course, this is very relevant in the lead up to the election because President Trump has recently nominated uh, uh, Amy Coney Barrett for the Supreme Court. This, of course, is to fill the vacancy left behind by the late Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. So why has the US judiciary become so politicized, PJ? Well, it's, a, it's simply a matter of legislative flab. Um, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg herself um, objected to, not the result of, but the law making, or not law making, the, uh, the, the legalization, le legal sophistry around Roe v. Wade, the Supreme Court ruling that, that made abortion legal in the United States, because she said that this was properly a legislative matter and that there was had been quite a head of steam building in the United States to legalize abortion all along, and that Roe v. Wade put a stop to that those legislative moves. The fact that our legislators have, have just refused to pick up the, the, the burden of lawmaking, um, has thrown these, all of these questions into the court. When you look like at something like, why would a, a, a country's health care program wind up in court? I mean, you know, it's a pretty simple, straightforward uh, 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 political problem. Um, and uh, you take a look at the Obamacare law, the thing was an absolute mess. I would, I, I would bet much money on, on, on the fact that no legislator in either House of Congress read that whole darn thing. And of course, it winds up in court. You know, was it a tax or was it a charge or was it this or was it that? A, a forced purchase, uh, was it constitutional or not constitutional? This is simply due to sluggishness, stupidity, self-indulgence, and um, sloth in our <laughs> legislative branch. Okay, question to you, Conrad, is by Paul Linwall. What would Kamala Harris do if she became president? Isn't she a bit like Harry Truman in FDR's fourth term? Uh, this was up till 1945. The sense of not having much scrutiny as a VP candidate likely to inherit the presidency. Kamala Harris, Conrad Black. 
Uh, it's hard to say, but, uh, you know, she, she was a quite a tough prosecutor to a fault, in my opinion. I, as you know, I'm a severe critic of the U.S. prosecution system. The <laughs> fact that they, they have 99% conviction rate, 97% without a trial, and have six to 12 times as many incarcerated people per capita as Australia, Canada, Britain, France, Germany, and Japan, uh, indicates what an abusive system it is. And she, she did abuse it, and she was a complete hypocrite, you know. She prosecuted successfully thousands of uh, uh, drug users, and uh, soft drug users, but even though she acknowledged being one herself at times. And um, on the other hand, she has, as a senator, been, um, according to the people who rate these things, on the far left of the U.S. Senate, and is, uh, although Joe Biden said last night that he was not in favor of the Green New Deal, his vice presidential candidate was the co-sponsor of it with Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez. And I, I think she would try to move things very sharply to the left and put herself distinctly and directly at the head of the left wing of the Democratic Party, which is very left and very large now. Uh, I don't think she'd be very successful. And I, I must say, while she's an attractive candidate, she's uh, fluent and smiles very nicely and so on, has a nice manner. Um, I've never found her in any public discussion to be very intelligent. And, and uh, you know, her answer to everything as a candidate was, well, we should have a national conversation about that. I mean, I, I, I didn't think that I could find anything more obnoxious than Elizabeth Warren saying I have a plan for that and then putting everyone to sleep with the plan. Uh, but in fact, she was. She, had a, she wanted a conversation. She had no views of anything. Uh, so I don't think she'd be a particularly effective president, but I'm sure she'd be, you know, much more robust personally than, than the presidential candidate that uh, uh, chose her. Uh, but I, uh, look, she would try and be part of the last... Kamala Harris came to national attention in 2013 uh, in the White House when President Obama was praising all the various attorneys general around the union. And he highlighted the role of Kamala Harris from California. She was then the attorney general by saying that she was the most intelligent, articulate, impressive attorney general, who, by the way, happens to be the most beautiful attorney general in the country. <laughs> and of course, all of Obama's mates, his left wing mates, they slammed him for saying you can't praise a woman's looks. <laughs> so Obama had a grovel and apologised. You might both remember that moment. But uh, following on from Kamala Harris, oh, PJ, we've got a good question here. Well, Charles uh, Gillies, he says to PJ, how is it that a great nation like the United States can produce two elderly, uninspiring candidates for president? PJ. Well, it, it takes a certain understanding of how our political party system works, which is that it doesn't. Um, uh, the, uh, um, the reason you get, you get such terrible presidential candidates, um, and, and we certainly have seen a, a bunch over, or, over the, the past decade or so, is that the Republican National Committee and the Democratic National Committee actually have very little power. They don't even have very much money uh, and, and much less influence. They are dependent on every, for, for everything on the 50 different state uh, uh, party organizations. Now, these state party organizations are, in turn, themselves not very powerful. They are dependent for everything upon the county-level uh, uh, political party organizations, the county chairman uh, 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 in the United States. So something like 
550,000 counties in the United States, and no one, frankly, no one in their right mind pays any attention to politics at a county level. I could no more name you my county Republican uh, committee chairman or or Democratic uh, than I could fly. And so what ends up is that the, 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 the Republican county chairman will be a, a retired aluminum siding salesman with a, a, a wearing a pair of plaid polyester pants that don't match his plaid polyester <coughs> shirt. And the Democratic uh, uh, party county party chairman will, will be an embittered divorced woman with 40 cats. And that's who pick our candidates. Okay, but I mean, what does all this mean for the world, though? Because there's no question that in recent years, America's credibility and prestige has dissipated dramatically. This is Rebecca from Forestville in Sydney. She says, according to a Pew Research Centre, a survey among 13 leading democracies, including Australia and Britain and Canada, it shows favourable views of the US reaching all-time lows in Pew's 20 years of polling. The positive view of the US, this is the medium rating, is 34% today. By contrast, in 2016, US approval ratings were anywhere between 57 and 72%. So, Conrad, to what extent does this worry you as a, a great admirer of America's leadership role in the world? Uh, not too much. I mean, the, the fact is uh, the world likes weak American leaders gentle, kindly, soft-spoken, and uh, cooperative uh, American leaders other than when they need a strong American leader to protect them. And, um, and so they, they, they loved Jimmy Carter. They loved Obama, but they were weak leaders, and, and they did not defend the American national interest very successfully. I mean, we had a prime minister in this country that you would both remember, Pierre Trudeau, for 15 years, long term. And he was a brilliant man in many ways and, and then defeated the separatists in Quebec, which is the big problem we had then. And, and, but he, he never understood why the American public liked Reagan better than Carter. And the world doesn't think in terms of what's best for the American national interest. They think of who is the American leader that, uh, that, uh, that raffles our nerves the least and that we find the most likable and cooperative. And uh, obviously Trump is going to fail that. And, and, you know, the decline in esteem for the country that you cited coincides with his time in the White House. And let us face facts. He is a perfect, a perfect exemplar of the caricature of the ugly American, the braggart, the loudmouth, annoying, boastful American. Now, there is that aspect to me. He is actually, in person, a delightful man. He's very polite. He doesn't speak over you. He listens politely, and he's extremely amusing as a raconteur. But, but that's not the point. His public persona is bound to be very irritating to the world. And since he's, he believes in maximum exposure and is in the face of the whole world every day, uh, they, they naturally identify the whole country with him and they don't like it. But, but uh, in this sense, BJ is right. I mean, if you had brought Biden in, the whole thing would bounce back. They would love Biden. They like weak American leaders unless they need yeah, strong. But there, there, is, there is more wrong with American foreign policy than Donald Trump. PJ, you look at all those endless wars that preceded Donald Trump in Iraq and Afghanistan, Libya, uh, the calls to bring down Assad in Syria. Uh, not a pretty look, as you've written before. 
And of course, uh, the US policy in Europe, arguably NATO expansion, that's just further alienated Russia. It's actually pushed Russia closer to China. Here in Australia, and CIS has been in the middle of this big debate about a rising China. It's our largest trade partner. And we're very worried about China and possible threats to our national sovereignty from Beijing. And this is a widely held view across East Asia. Question to PJ, given all of the polarization in America, uh, given all of the you know, dramas on the America's streets, given America's overreach since the end of the Cold War, how confident should we in Australia be about America maintaining a leadership role in Asia in the face of a rising China? PJ O'Rourke. I think we should be pretty confident. I, one of the things I've got to say very much in favor of, of, uh, of President Trump is that he has pushed the China question to, to, to the fore. They're not good people. They never were, I mean, the government. Uh, they, they never were good people, but with Xi Jinping, they've become much worse and show every signs of, of, of going down from there. And I think that is the big enemy to be faced, the big enemy to be dealt with. Uh, and and I, 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 th I think that, that, that despite the, the sort of diffuse and confused nature of American foreign policy, which we have to blame to a certain extent on the diffuse and confused nature of foreigners, one th problem with foreign policy is that foreigners are in charge of it, and it's, it's very hard to tell them what to do or tell what they're going to do next. Um, despite the sort of messiness of, of the uh, post-George H.W. Bush era, um, I, 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 I think we're beginning to get refocused on just how dangerous China is, and I hope we're beginning to re refocus on how dangerous Russia is. I'm, I'm not worried a whit about NATO. Well, I'm worried about NATO expansion because of, of Turkey, but I'm not worried about NATO expansion into Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia. I think that it's t high time that the Russians learned that that. that uh, that they can't mess around and do anything that they want. Uh, I, I'm, I'm still very disappointed about their grabbing Crimea and they're continuing to support this civil war in Ukraine. I'd like to see us be tougher on them. But I think we're, I think we're moving in that direction. We're beginning to realize that we have, besides the Islamicist uh, 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 terrorists, uh, that we have real national enemies in this world and that we need to address that in a forthright manner. Conrad, sticking with China, uh, the period from Richard Nixon right through to Barack Obama, there was a consensus in Washington of close engagement with Beijing. Donald Trump challenged that consensus during the 2016 campaign. And during his three and a half years, it has to be said that Donald Trump has changed the political consensus in Washington. Most Democrats support Trump's tough position on trade with respect to strategic issues in the South China Sea. Uh, Hong Kong, and of course, most notably, trade protectionism. To what extent is there a difference between Joe Biden and Donald Trump on China policy? Uh, it, it's hard to say uh, because, as in most things, Biden moves around a lot. So he's faced in all four directions on every issue, from you know <laughs> fracking the green issues to to China, and his early reaction uh, when China when, when the the, the revelation by this administration of some of China's skullduggery came to light and, and uh, tariffs were imposed was, uh, you know, in his uh, way of speaking, China's not the problem, man, I'm quoting. Uh, and now he, he has got on board because, as you say, this is one area where the old 
Americans saying partisanship ends at the water's edge still subsists. And I, I, I don't have unlimited use for Senator Chuck Schumer, but he right from the start has supported the president on this issue. And I give him credit mm. for it. Most of his colleagues have. So uh, I, I, I think that in, in fairness, the previous presidents from Mr. Nixon on uh, were right to think that it was a good thing for China to be involved in the world, not be isolated. And it was generally a good thing that they uh, adapted a, a, a market economy, at least substantially so. It's still about 40% a command economy. But they are pulling millions and millions of people out of poverty every year. And everyone would agree that is essentially a good thing. But, uh, but it, it, as they have progressed, they have become uh, more... Uh, uh, convinced of some sort of manifest destiny to have this belt and road and dominate much of the Eurasian landmass and part of Africa and so on. And uh, the, the present uh, policy, the Trump policy of, of civil relations with China, but recognizing them as a rival and practicing a, a form of containment, a adapted form of the system that worked opposite the Soviet Union, a, a much more uh, vehement enemy. Um, the, the the greatest supporters of that are in are in the theater, including your country, Tom. But for, uh, that whole arc from Japan to Indonesia to Australia and to Vietnam, and and if if you would allow them in from Taiwan, uh, and ultimately India. Uh, which I see signed a military agreement with Japan the other day, I, they think that this is fabulous and, and, and they are entirely supportive of what Trump's doing. And I believe your own prime minister is. Yes, but, uh, you know, 2013, uh, Robert Gates, who was the former defence secretary under both presidents George W. Bush and Barack Obama, he was asked what was the greatest national security threat that the United States faced. PJ, he didn't say China. He didn't say Russia. He didn't say Islamic jihadists. He didn't say climate change. He said the two square miles that encompasses the Capitol building and the White House. In other words, all that political polarization, the hyperpartisanship, that was the greatest threat to American national security. PJ. Oh, I think I think he was making a good little joke there. But you know, and the truth of the matter is that that one of the um, bright sides, perhaps the only bright side to the extreme internal divisions in the United States, is that means that Americans do not perceive that we're under external threat. Um, I think that Americans are wrong in that perception. We are uh, 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 under external threat. Uh, weak as, uh, and, uh, and a wasting power, though Russia may be, they still have a lot of very nasty weapons. And... Um, and a large, nasty army. And uh, one of the things I think that will bring Americans back together, that will get us over the current partisan divide, is that perception that there are external threats. Um, we saw it, albeit fairly briefly, after 9-11, but we, we, we've seen it in force uh, uh, when, when the chips are really down, World War One, World War II, um, and... Um, you know, I, 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 I think, I mean, I think that was a good wisecrack from Gates. Okay, so, so you're an optimist, you're optimist about America, then you think America's got enormous demonstrated capacity for change and renewal and eventually bounce back from these setbacks, PJ? Oh, yeah, I, I am very optimistic about America. We're a ship with a lot of keel. We can take water over mm. the port side and we can take water over the star, starboard side, but we tend to right ourselves. Um, but um, 
I'm rather unoptimistic. I'm quite a pessimist about uh, the world out there and the threats that it presents, you know, and uh, uh, there are ways I'd rather see America unified than by having to face down an external threat. Okay, Conrad, put on your historian's hat here. The United States is going through what many would argue is a watershed moment. You've got a health crisis with a global pandemic that's claimed more than 200,000 American souls. You've got an economic crisis, which is the, the, the virus-induced recession. You've clearly got a cultural crisis with the rise of this left-wing cancel culture and identity politics on uh, university campuses. It's now infected uh, many American cultural institutions. There's... Um, there's this toxic polarisation that we're talking about. And then, of course, there's a the rise of China, which threatens to uh, challenge American primacy in East Asia. Bearing all of that in mind and giving this year's very divisive presidential election, optimist or pessimist about America? Conrad Black. Optimist. Um, it is an overwhelmingly powerful country. There has never in the history of the world been anything remotely like the growth of the United States in two long lifetimes from a couple of million colonists to uh, half of the economic product of the world and a nuclear monopoly at the end of World War II. And uh, it, it uh, doesn't function perfectly. But, but the fact is those who have challenged it Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union, and in a less militant way, China now, are, are, are not, they can't win that battle. The United States is fundamentally the most powerful country in the world, and it is highly motivated, and, and uh, PJ is right. If it actually detects a serious foreign challenge, it unites almost completely. I mean, uh, President Roosevelt's address on D-Day, the Gallup organization re-polled. They found support for it was 100%. Uh, and and uh, you'll get to that if the country as a whole is threatened. Uh, it, it, it is also true that the only country that can threaten the United States is the United States. Mr. Lincoln said that in 1858, and President Nixon at the end of the silent majority speech in 1969 said North Vietnam cannot defeat or humiliate the United States. No power on earth can do that except the United States, but it won't do it. It, 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 there's a lot of ruin in a country, as Adam Smith said, and the, and the, but the U.S. is fundamentally an extremely powerful country. Okay, so although Conrad and PJ have had their disagreements about Donald Trump and the U.S. presidential race, and although they express themselves in different ways, they are essentially optimists about America, uh, which is a good way to conclude today's event. Conrad, PJ, on behalf of our colleagues and board members and supporters here at CIS, thanks so much for being with us today. You're welcome, thank, Tom, thank you. and, and thank you, Conrad. It was a pleasure. So. Lovely to meet you, PJ. Well, thanks, PJ, and thanks, Conrad. Great debate. I'm Tom Switzer, and I hope you can tune in next time. Now, for decades, CIS has been a fiercely independent voice working tirelessly to deliver evidence-based public policy. We rely solely on generosity of people like you for donations to advance our classical liberal cause. Check out the links on screen now to see how you can get involved with CIS. And to get notified of future videos, make sure you subscribe to our channel and click the notification bell.